All right, welcome to episode seven of season two of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author Emily White. So today we are going to be talking about how to market with or without a budget. Um, I'm going to go over a few things for a little bit before we bring out our esteemed guests. Um, but before I do, today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. I want to take the time to congratulate Banzoogle members for passing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, plus mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters. It also includes integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles. This is in addition to live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain. How to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code SUSTAINABLE, all caps, and we'll share a direct link at the end of the show notes. And huge shout out to my friend Dave Cool at Banzoogle that I've known uh, way too long, and that is his real last name. Um, they've been doing awesome work um, to help artists build websites for years, whether you can code or not. So we're going to recap again um, because we are taking you through the entire modern music industry from recording to release or creation to execution, making sure you're not missing a single revenue stream along the way. So we started by getting our art together with Vernon Reed of Living Color. And then we did do a little bit of marketing in episode two. We set your pre-recording marketing foundation uh, and made sure you were monetizing your release and your music before it's even out through a pre-order. Uh, and then from there, we uh, talked to Carl Folks about getting your business affairs together, all of your legal work around music. Uh, we recorded with Anna Ochoa all the way from Colombia. So your recording should be in place and ready to go. And at this point, Hopefully, you um, have helped me achieve my dream of knowing what music publishing is and how to collect on it. Um, in short, sign up for your performing rights organization uh, in your local country, and then you also need to sign up with Song Trust or a publishing administrator to collect on your music publishing in full. Um, we also talked about how to land a sync placement, so you've been getting your music out um, to music libraries and music supervisors, starting to build relationships there. And then on Saturday, we taught you how to set up your release and distribution plan, um, starting with your website. That's where you're going to have the highest profit margin. Um, and then pushing out your band camp, where you're going to have the second highest profit margin and also get the fans' data, which is the case with your website as well, and then push out streaming. And that's going to be a theme um, of today, too, because your fans can only help you in the best ways if you tell them. So at this point in the process, your release is out. You know, you've done all this work. And now what? So before I dig in on marketing, if 
you know, if hiring the biggest and best PR firms in the world and the best social media companies and the best radio promo companies made people huge, then everyone would go hire like that company in each category or any of those companies, right? Um, So that's not necessarily the case. Spending thousands of dollars or tens of thousand dollars doesn't necessarily equal success. Um, To me, that goes back to chapter one, um, getting your art together, right? Like making music that's true to your heart, your soul, your soul, your spirit, not caring what I think or what Evan thinks or what a label thinks, right? Like that's what's going to connect with people. So before I talk about marketing, you know, I have a section in the book that this podcast is based on um, called A Note on Attitude. And so what I'm talking about there is the grass is always greener on the other side is a famous phrase for a reason, right? Like it's totally natural to look at what someone else has and think, why do, I, why do they have that and, and I don't? Um, especially in the social media era, right? Like... Um, it's, you know, it's impossible. It's almost impossible not to get FOMO, fear of missing out, right? Um, I truly believe that if you focus on your own green grass, making like great music that's, like I said, true to your heart, soul, and spirit, and connecting with your audience and building and cultivating those elements, you are going to grow in your career Um, and in your marketing and all that. But if you truly can't stand the FOMO, okay? Like, oh my gosh, Sheila's son has it going on. I want what Sheila's son has happening, right? Like I, you know, that's an advantage of the digital era where I can reach out um, and set up a Zoom, set up a coffee um, because, you know, Sheila's son might be looking at me as an artist. I'm not really an artist um, and say, well, I want what she has going on, right? So you can also... Um, connect with artists. If you truly can't handle the FOMO, get together, figure out what's working, what isn't, um, because all boats rise together, all tides rise together. Um, I do want to talk about that later in another episode, but, you know, support each other as an artist and and music community. I also want to make a note on balance when it comes to marketing. Um, We all know artists and, you know, I'm people in other areas of our lives too, but in the music industry where um, people just get like obsessed with the industry part, obsessed with, you know, marketing, press, social media. And there's a reason why chapter one is chapter one, right? Get your art together. Like if you're just focusing on all the other chapters, you're not going to be successful. I don't care if it takes you a year or five years or whatever to get your art together. Um, if you're trying to skip steps, we talked about that um, with a, a few of our guests, um, you're going to slip on that ladder, right? You're not going to have that rung to fall back on. So you need to find um, balance in this work. And so I feel like if, I'm going to use the word hate, if you hate social media and responding to emails like from industry people and work stuff, you should set aside an hour, a business day, like a weekday, non-holiday, um, to do those things. And if you love social media and you are totally addicted, which is completely natural because, you know, the best tech companies and computer programmers in the world, like, literally study what colors, like, okay, red, they're going to notice. And they, like, you know, these, plat- these platforms are literally built to be addicting with algorithms, algorithms and everything. So, 
Um, if you love social media and you love networking in the industry and stuff, you should limit yourself to an hour a business day, okay? Um, so set aside that time on weekdays. You need to be responding to emails. Like, I'm not going to make a whole podcast episode out of this, but I, I mean, I'm talking about it now, um, but I, I'm going to talk about it throughout. Like, too many artists, too many industry people in local scenes just like this one don't respond to emails. Um, and, I, and I ask why, too. And a lot of times it comes out of insecurity. Um, my business partner said to me once, there's two types of people. There's people that respond to things and people that don't. And I would add to that, guess which ones are successful, right? Um, but anyway, back to balance for a second. Look, I get it. You are an artist first. And um, that's why, like I said, if you love it or hate it, carve out an, an, hour, of, uh, an hour a day. And if you're in a, in a band or group, split up the duties, right? If there's someone that's really good at this stuff, I still want them to find balance. Um, it doesn't necessarily all have to, um, you, don't, you know, you get what I'm saying. Find the, find the person in your group who's, who's into that if, if you are in a band or group. Okay, and then we are going to talk about how to market without a budget. But if you do have some sort of budget, I feel like this is changing a little bit. But artists tend to want a publicist, in my experience, which is really interesting because we're going to talk about the return on investment um, with press. But I do see artists a little bit more excited about um, publicists than maybe, understandably, like a social media agency or even a radio uh, promo company. So if you are um, interested in hiring a publicist, you need to reach out to them as early as possible, like, you know, months and months in advance, even like six months in advance, um, because you need to give them the lead time um, to be able to pitch your music. They are also busy people. Music journalists are busy people. Um, so you need, and also like they often have a lot of other artists they're working with, you know, so get them demos, get them unreleased music. You know, you can do a private SoundCloud link. Um, uh, I was going to say for security, I hate saying that attackable, but you get the idea. Private SoundCloud licks are fine. Um, and just reach out to the publicist uh, as, as early as possible. That's also the case if you want to do a track premiere, right? Um, I feel like that's becoming less of a thing, but it's still a thing. Um, so if you want to do some sort of song or track or video premiere, again, you're going to need that lead time with the publicist um, as well as with the folks they're pitching. So there's, I have a lot of publicist friends and there's, there's like no such thing as two lead time. So don't just like, you know, send them an email and be like, my release is out next week. Can I work with you? That it also shows like, you don't, I don't mean this in a bad way. It shows like, I was gonna say, you don't really know what you're doing, but um, it shows that you don't have a lot of experience in that space. Right. So you don't want to learn that the hard way. And finally, um, if you are working with a publicist, be upfront about your expectations. And, you know, that's not, I mean, that's not necessarily like, oh, well, I want to be in Pitchfork or I want to be in Rolling Stone and I'm super new. I mean, it's fine to say that, but actually what I'm talking about is if you've started to get some press on your own, right? Like maybe, you know, Shepard Express is writing about you or Milwaukee Record or um, the journal Sentinel, um, make sure your publicist knows that. Like, hey, here are the five outlets or the five writers that always cover me. I'm looking to build on that. Because I've seen artists hire publicists and not say that. And then um, the publicist goes and lands all those things. And then, you know, the publicist thinks she's doing a really good job. But then the artist gets really resentful and is like, why am I spending um, 
all this money, right? So communication is queen. Just make sure you're upfront about press that you've gotten in the past, which is also going to help them um, do their job. So you have to be upfront about that stuff. Um, I actually don't even think PR is the most important thing, but those, it, when it comes to marketing, but those are elements I wanted to get out of the way first. Um, if you do happen to have, um, a budget, I'm going to talk about PR a little bit more, uh, later, but really when your release is out, what's most important is for you to let your text message club fans know your email list fans know, and your Patreon fans know, cause those are your hard cores. Those are the ones that have given you the permission of their data um, as, and often their money, right? Like through pre-orders and through Patreon. So these are the ones you really want to take care of, not the casual fan that might be skimming, um, a music blog or, or website. So take care of them, you know, send them the track, the album, EP, space opera, whatever you're doing, send that to them a day in advance, two days in advance. Um, so really take care of those hardcore fans on your text message list, email list, and Patreon first. Like I said, the day it's out, even better, a few days before it's out. So they feel special because they are special. And from there, you want to announce this stuff on social media, right? And I've shared this throughout the podcast, but to me, the A-plus version when your release is out is to share with fans, hey, here are bundles from my website, right? The, that's where you're going to keep, uh, have the highest profit margin. You're going to get the data from those fans. And um, yeah, you could even run a sale or special, like if you've been running a pre-order too, like, hey, release day special. Because like I said, your fans want to support you in the best way possible, but they don't know how if you don't tell them. And every, not every artist, but the majority of artists of all ages, just pop that Spotify link up on social media first thing. And they're like, okay, it's out, you know? And I'm not saying don't do that, but wait until the third day of release. So the first day would be website. In my A-plus opinion, you can use Banzoogle. Um, I also, I, you know, my company's website is Squarespace. I can't code. Those are all uh, great options, whether you can code or not. And then that second day, I would post on your social media, hey, my music is up on Bandcamp. And let me make it clear, your music should be up on Bandcamp on release day and out on what's called the DSPs, digital service providers. So that's going to be Spotify and all the streaming platforms. I'm not saying don't have these, you know, don't have your music up on these outlets on release day. It's what order are you sharing your music, right? Like you want to share it in the order that benefits you the most. So first day website, second day uh, Bandcamp, and then that third day, push out your Spotify link. Maybe the fourth day, push out a title link. Maybe the fifth day, push out an Apple Music link. And once you start to go down that streaming path, that's a way of pushing out your music every day without saying the exact same thing over and over, right? Like, I know there's like Linktree and, and Handy, um, you know, group links that I often find super intimidating, you know? Um, or not intimidating, but just like, oh, that, that's like a lot of links. That's a lot of info, right? Spread it out, you know, instead of, instead of just being like, it's out, it's out, it's out, which technically is what you're saying. Um, you are pushing out different links and a different reminder, um, each day. So I hope that makes sense as far as going in order and telling your fans how they can best support you because, um, they don't know how, unless you let them know. Um, I just want to do a quick primer on social media 101, um, look, like it is all about text message club email list and you should be using your social media to drive traffic to that. 
Um, because again, that's data you own and control, but we can't deny the power of social media, right? Um, and, and how useful those tools can be. And at the same time, I'm a college professor. I've had many interns over the years. And I see on many uh, college student resumes that they have internet marketing experience and they don't, um, which means you probably don't too. And not that you need to become like a super expert on this. Although if you want to, uh, my friend Ariel Hyatt has written amazing books uh, for musicians as far as getting going with social media. So if you are overwhelmed, she also has a great email list and a lot of free resources on her social media. So I do recommend that. But just some basics that most musicians, let alone most people, are terrible at. Um, start by tagging everything you can, right? Like tag venues, tag other artists you're playing with. Um, when you do get press, tag the journalist that's writing about you, tag the media outlet. Don't just pop up like I'm playing No Studios or I'm playing Cactus Club or whatever. Tag, tag everything that's taggable, kind of nouns, right? Like, you know, people, places, um, I guess things would be like more hashtagged, but um, other things can have tags too, right? I remember uh, I live in New York City and one of the first nice days of the year, I rode my bike from Brooklyn into Manhattan. I was going to see a show and tweeted something like, um, you know, super excited to see the big sleep at pianos or whatever. And Pianos was the venue, and they retweeted me to their, like, 100,000 followers. And I remember thinking, I wish they were retweeting the band, you know? I mean, the band was in my tweet and in my tag and stuff, but, like, you need to get in the habit that every time you do a post, if there's something taggable, tag it. Like, even as I'm saying this, I can feel my ring fingers kind of twitching because I can't not tag things when I do it. So you just want these things um, to become habit so you're not even thinking about it. And I know Twitter is, I don't want to say becoming less popular, but um, going through some issues right now. I, I like it because I, I like words. Um, but I still see people open tweets with what I would call like an at reply, right? And if you are opening a tweet with an at symbol, it thinks that I'm talking to Eli, right? Or it thinks I'm talking to Niall, um, so if you open, uh, with, with an at symbol, you need to pop a period in front. Um, so that way, uh, everyone sees it. Cause otherwise it thinks you're having a conversation and that's really important too. Like if someone's writing about you, right? So, um, like again, if, if Shepard Express or someone is writing about you and you open with that at reply, it's only the only people who see it will are folks that follow Shepard Express and you. So, um, yeah, that's a basic that I, I still see people make that mistake constantly, even, even marketing people. Um, cool. And then add hashtags to stuff that aren't taggable and then reply to fans too. You know what I mean? Um, obviously when someone gets creepy, cut them off, block them. I'm certainly all for that. Um, but most fans aren't. And even just like a heart, a favorite, whatever can totally make their day. I'm a huge geek about Olympic swimming. The day Katie Ledecky started following with me, I'm like, okay, my life can be over now. I'm good. Um, you don't need to follow every single fan, but think about that experience um, for yourself. And then also with those replies, again, use it to drive traffic back to your email list and text message club. Um, so when someone's like, when are you coming to Detroit? When are you coming to LA? When are you coming to Cincinnati? Reply and be like, here's my text, you know, text club link. Sign up and, and so I can let you know directly because otherwise you're just going to be beholden um, to algorithms and they might not see your tour dates posted um, when you do make it 
to those cities. So I truly believe that, um, you know, if you do this again, every business day, like I talked about, like for, for an hour a weekday, do this engagement. Um, you are, I don't believe, I know you're going to grow over time. And I meet countless artists of all ages. Um, sometimes they, um, ask me to consult and, um, you know, I go to their social media presence and I, ha I see they haven't updated, um, their socials for like six months. Right. Um, as an industry person, I don't want to care more than you do. Um, so an hour a day is good. At the same time, we want to be mindful about mental health, about balance. There's many platforms. And, um, you know, as far as different platforms go, choose what's right for you. You know, like I'm not on Snapchat. The first time I saw it, I'm like, this is like way too distracting. I can't handle this. I'm still not on TikTok. I may have like my assistant push some stuff out on it, but like I'd rather be effective at what I am doing. At the same time, like for you all as artists, grab your handles on every platform because even if it's one you're not using, you can do a, you know, like say, I totally understand not being on Twitter right now. Trust me, you know? So do a pinned tweet of whatever you have going on, right? Like your latest release, your tour dates, and then add a link to the email list and text message club. And I was just talking to um, Cam Franklin of The Suffers about this, who's a phenomenal artist, amazing band. Um, I had her on the I Voted podcast that I um, hosted last year. And she was just like, <laughs> she's a big fan of this book too, of this book. And she was a guest on season one, which is a huge honor. Um, but she was like, Emily, I, I can't do, you know, she was on the road in a hotel room and she's like, I, I can't, do the social media stuff anymore. I'm so burned out. I'm sick of the memes. I'm sick of the trends. And I'm like, Cam, your band is amazing. It is all about the music and all about the audience. So you should do what I just said, you know, like posts have pinned posts of whatever you have going on, whether it's a tour, it's a release. If you have a little ad spend, you can throw behind it. Great. And then just let folks know, like, here's the email list link. Here's the text message clump club link. That's, that's how I'm going to be able to communicate my music and shows to you forever. Like Cam smokes weed with her fans on Patreon. You know what I mean? Like, and they love it and that works for her. And so, I mean, for all of you, like you just need to focus on authenticity. And if you can't handle social media, which I totally get, um, do some pin posts with relevant information, throw a little ad spend behind it. If you can, if you can't, I've had tons of artists that are super successful that don't have ad budgets. I personally only just started playing around with it. So don't sweat it if you don't have an ad budget. But like, if you do like try a dollar a day or try a few dollars a day, especially when you have a release out or tour dates um, and then kind of let the algorithms uh, do their thing. I personally uh, have uh, one rule for social media for myself. I try to only post positive things on the internet. Um, the one or two times I have broken my own rule, that has definitely come to bite me in the butt. Um, my business partner says that's very on brand for me. So maybe that's not on brand for you, but I truly believe if you only post positive things on the internet, uh, then you can't go wrong. So keep that golden, golden rule in mind for posting. Um, yeah, I talked about, uh, you know, pinned posts, you know, again, we talked about music platform announcements. Don't just be like, okay, my release is out. That's it. Spread those out so you can continue to spread the word. Um, and then I just want to talk about SoundCloud for a second. 
you know your genres and you know if your genres are relevant on SoundCloud. Um, sound, you make no money from SoundCloud. They make tons of money. Obviously, like if you do rap, if you do EDM, there are genres um, that are good for SoundCloud. But again, pop your email list link and your text message club link on your SoundCloud page so you are getting that data instead of like, okay, I'm checking out Eli. Okay, I'm checking out Sheila's son. And then I'm just moving on to the next. You're just letting, I think Warner's own SoundCloud now, you're just letting them reap all that money and you're not getting anything. Like at least on Spotify, you're getting paid fractions of a cent, right? Like that's how wild that is. So I'm not saying don't be on SoundCloud. You guys know your genres and know that if you should be on there, but like I've mostly worked in indie rock and like the indie artists don't need to be on there. Um, again, we mostly use SoundCloud links just for private links um, to send to music supervisors or different people in the industry uh, when music is unreleased. Okay, uh, one last PR primer before we bring Evan on. Um, I mentioned the return on investment or ROI when it comes to uh, PR firms. So when I was growing up here in Milwaukee, um, I would read about an artist in like Spin Magazine. And then I would drive in my car down to exclusive company and spend like $15 on a CD, um, which that's a lot of steps and kind of more of a story on how the industry has changed. But my point is being written about in one of those magazines meant sales, right? Like there was a direct correlation where money Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline would be made. Now, the ROI on PR, uh, on getting press is almost non-existent. In fact, I just saw Sherry Hugh, um, I don't know if it was Sherry or someone from her team at Water and Music talking about how there's actually not really been any studies on um, the, effectiveness, the effectiveness of marketing. Um, so I'm really glad that Sherry and her team are, are talking about that because it's so true. So now... I mean, I've had tons of artists like in, you know, Pitchfork, Brooklyn Vegan, Stereo Gum, whatever. And guess what? They don't necessarily automatically become huge. You know what I mean? Like you need to be making great music. You need to be collecting, connecting with your audience. Um, there are ways to work with press and PR effectively to maximize those elements, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but my point is like what... If you're looking at these PR firms, um, and by the way, <laughs> like, I, like I said, I have a lot of friends who are publicists. And I'm like, when I wrote this book, I'm like, they are going to be so mad at me. And um, they love this book. They love this chapter. I'm stunned. I think also, because um, I'll get into this, like, I'm also teaching you the best way to help them, to help do their job effectively. But before I get into that, I think this is the part I was like paranoid about. Um, if you reach out to one of these big PR firms, not even big, just the ones where you see artists that you like, um, they're going to quote you $3,500 a month, $5,000 a month. Um, you shouldn't be paying that much unless you're a superstar artist and um, someone else, is, even if someone else is paying it for you, like a label or something, that is so much money to recoup. Um, 
And again, the ROI, the return on investment isn't necessarily super high. See if they'll do it for 1500 bucks. You know, if you're paying it, um, you know, yourself as an independent artist, see if they'll even do it for a thousand. Um, see if they'll do a longer campaign, right? Like at a lower rate instead of just being like, okay, it costs 3,500 bucks a month. Let's do it. Or cost $5,000 a month. I was meeting with an excellent young manager here in Milwaukee. And she's like, we're talking to this PR firm and we're talking to that PR firm. And I'm like, what is your goal? And she didn't really have an answer. I mean, she thought about it and she said exposure, right? Um, and again, I'm not saying it's easy to have like a meme go viral and stuff, but like, okay, you could spend thousands of dollars at a PR firm or you could come up with something clever yourself or you could create great art and let that spread. I know I keep talking about Justin Vernon a lot um, in this podcast, but that's, you know, a huge reason why I interviewed him in season one um, for my students at NYU because I was trying to get this across. You know, this is a guy from Northern Wisconsin that posted his music on MySpace and it just spread. And if you go back to that episode, I ask him, did you have a publicist? And I don't know if he said hell or heck or whatever, you know, hell no. No, I didn't even know what a publicist was, you know? And he posted it on MySpace and the music just started spreading because music writers were checking it out um, organically and the music is so beautiful and spread from there. So, you know, keep that in mind as far as PR budgets and ROI or return on investment. Okay, if you are working with a publicist, uh, you know, a publicist have, you know, get your assets together, right? Um, so make sure you have high res photos that you own the rights to, that you feel good about. We all have ridiculous cameras on our phones, like nicer cameras than even existed in the pre-digital era. So you don't necessarily need um, to do a photo shoot and, and go wild with that. Um, so make sure you have assets together, you know, have your links ready, your unreleased music ready, your Spotify links ready for the publicist. You wanted a nice, clean, short to the point email, have your tour dates handy. This is kind of obvious to publicists, but make sure they know anyone, you know, they can be on the guest list. Anyone on their team can be on the guest list. Anyone, um, you know, any writer can be on the guest list. If any outlets or, uh, you know, want to give away tickets, just make sure um, that's that's available to folks. And, you know, just a couple more things and then we'll, we'll bring Evan on. Um, you also want to have respect, respectful communication with your publicist, not only because we want to be nice people and also it benefits you in the long term because... Um, you're going to want to work with them again. Uh, you know, and I'll pause there for a second. Like, um, I am, I run a nonprofit called I Voted and I Voted Festival and a really amazing PR firm called Biz3 handles our PR gratis, which is ridiculous. I'm so grateful. And I, I am so genuinely nice and grateful about everything where like Dana, our publicist, like, I don't mean this how it sounds, but like expects us to be in the New York Times, expects the best for us. And when that doesn't happen and the stuff we do get, I'm like, Dana, this is amazing. Like you're crushing it. And she told me at the end, she was like, you had such a positive spirit and you were so nice and we really like working with you. I'm like, well, you didn't see me every day. Um, but I know how hard her job is. I know how passionate she is about us. And I would never be like, oh, like... <laughs> any publicist sucks because we're not in the New York Times. Not that I think people really think that, but my my point on respect, re respectful communication, though, as far as you all go, is certainly what I just said. Um, but 
when you have a release out, maybe they're serving, servicing a press release, or maybe they're going for a video premiere or whatever. If you are emailing and texting your publicists every two seconds or just regularly, you are slowing down their productivity and time to be able to reach out to folks. Okay. So when there's a press hit, there's gonna tell, they're going to tell you, or there's a bite or whatever. And also set up Google alerts for yourself, and then you will get those press hits, hits instantly, not just the ones that the publicist is pitching for you, but I find Google alerts on this book and, you know, I find people writing about and talking about uh, this podcast and book all the time. And I've never had a publicist um, on this thing. I mean, the webcasting company volume is, is certainly helping with that, but... Um, Everything has been uh, super organic. And, and actually, to that point with organic, really, really quick. Um, when, this, when I created this podcast, it was just like by myself during the pandemic. And I had a little press list and I was like, I'll service a press release. And I happened to see a stereo gum, a general stereo gum email address on it. And I was like, yeah, right. Are they going to write about this? Um, and then they did. And it was totally like authentic. Like they listened to the episode, they understood what I was trying to get across. And this is to my point where like, you can spend a lot of money on publicists and they can have their, I mean, Evan might totally disagree with me, but like they could have their friend or relationship at Pitchfork or whatever, like, okay, cool, I'll check this out. Or like, I wanna keep a good relationship with that publicist. But like I said, I have, um, I've had plenty of artists on all of those outlets and it, it feels kind of forced sometimes. It doesn't feel as organic. And when that, much more organic stereo gum piece for this podcast happened, those numbers did go through the roof. But it, to me, it's because the writer listened to the episode, understood what I was trying to get across and wrote a really authentic piece, not like, okay, I have to write about this thing or, okay, there, there's um, a new track out or, or whatever. And um, just two last things and we'll bring Evan on. Uh, I have a, an image of a tweet in the book where... A journalist says, um, you know, publicist, colon, you know, write about this artist, publicist, write about this artist, publicist, write about something like that over and over. And then I say, okay, I'll write about this artist. And the publicist is like, oh, let me see if they're doing interviews, you know? So respond to your publicist, be available. If they are, this really goes for anyone you're working with in the industry. But if the publicist or any industry person is chasing you, that is time um, they don't have to be like hanging out with Evan and, and building um, other relationships on your behalf. Um, uh, I know I said two more things, two more things for real. Uh, when you're, I, we kind of covered this, but when you're posting, and even if you're working with a publicist, I see too many artists get a press report and that press report just sits in their inbox. Um, when, you push the, when you push links out, there's a savvy way to do it, you know? And to be honest, like, I'm not like trying to get followers. Like you could follow me on social media because I do this very inherently. Um, if I get a piece of press, I might be like, thanks, you know, thanks to at Glenn Peoples, at Billboard, you know, for covering I Voted Festival. And then I'm tagging all, all those entities and that could be day one. And then maybe the next day I'm tweeting about swimming or something, um, but I'll find the original um, post from Billboard and then like retweet that, right? Um, so there's different ways to spread it out, but it's really important, tag the journalist, tag the outlet, not every musician does this, so that's a way to stand out. And then maybe Evan will start following you. Maybe the public, maybe the publication does. Maybe the publication retweets you. But that's not going to be the case. You know, they're not going to be able to pop it into a story or anything if if you don't tag them and 
and let them know to spread the word. Um, okay, this is the most important thing to me uh, when it comes to PR. So when you do get press, this is not something that could be done in the pre-digital era. Grab that journalist's email address, which is very often publicly available. If it's not, grab their Instagram or their Twitter handle or whatever. Start a Google spreadsheet and pop it in there for yourself. And then you are building up your own custom PR database um, instead of paying someone thousands of dollars um, to do that, or even every time you have a release out, right? Um, when I was managing artists, we would call this fancy friends, right? So anytime a blogger, tastemaker, even music supervisor um, that comes into your life, or like I said, journalist writes about you, grab that email address, throw it in a Google spreadsheet called fancy friends. Because like I said, um, even if you are paying a publicist, you might not necessarily um, have a budget for that further down the line, even like within that release cycle, right? So maybe you're paying for a publicist when the release is out, but you don't have the funds when you're touring or because maybe you're spending money on touring um, or when you have a music video come out. So then you have that database and you can do it through MailChimp or you could even do a BCC'd email because they're going to love hearing from you. Letting those folks know who love your music already what you have going on. So that's how to build sustainable PR for the long term is collecting that data from the folks who are already writing about you. And again, that's going to be really powerful for when you are working with PR. Um, so you can tell um, publicists, okay, you know, I'm already working with X, Y, and Z. Okay, that's way longer than I told poor Evan I would talk about this stuff. Um, so let's get Evan up here. Um, I'm super excited to introduce Evan Ret Retleski. He was helping me practice before. Let's give it up for Evan. And I'll just, you can sit. I'm, I'll stand for one more second. Um, so Evan, Evan Retleski is a veteran music journalist based, uh, based out of Milwaukee, here in Milwaukee. He's a longtime contributor to Pitchfork, who has also written for Paste, American Songwriter, NPR, and The Washington Post. For over a decade, he was the music editor for Milwaukee's weekly paper, The Shepherd Express. More recently, he was a music writer, web editor, and podcast host for Radio Milwaukee. He also hosted the WMSE, WMSE culture podcast, the, the, ah, the disclaimer. Let's give it up for Evan one more time. All right. Thanks for uh, bearing with that long marketing lesson. It's, uh, it's a good topic. It's okay. like one of the topics where I see musicians get really tangled. Like, yeah. make a lot of mistakes. Well, let's start there. I'm already going to go off script. What mistakes <laughs> do you see uh, people making? Um, just sort of like you suggested, you know, I, you've said that there's not a lot of ROI behind uh, these media placements. And that's really true. And I think a lot of musicians know that on some level. But, you know, as an artist, you want your art to be heard, right? And you want it to be seen. Yeah. And you want it to be celebrated. And I think a lot of musicians see press placement sort of as a way of vindicating what they do. Yeah. It's, I hate to say it, but it's vanity in some yeah. ways. And so when vanity becomes involved, I think a lot of like musicians stop thinking strategically and they just start thinking with their egos. Like, how can I get this placement? How can I get this coverage? Somebody else had this. How can I get it? And I understand all that, mm -hmm. but it's not doing you all that much. And so I see a lot of musicians throw a lot of money behind publicists mm -hmm. that they are just not ready for. They are just, you know, the, it's their first album. It's their first time. 
they're excited about it. They want to go. And uh, it's not there. I mean, it's chapter one in your book. You got to get the art there first. Um, but, but that's, a, you know, it's hard to wait. <laughs> I think some musicians don't want to wait until they can get the art there. That is so right. And you sparked something I should have said before. You know, when I'm working with um, an artist and a publicist, like, I'm really realistic with publicists. Like, actually, no matter the level of the artist, but usually newer artists, where I'm like, hey, can we just try to get, like, one or two press hits? Because then I can take it to music supervisors. Then I can take it to booking agents. It is kind of that validation. I'm not necessarily saying that's um, right or wrong, but that just so you know, like when I have an artist spending on PR, like that's, that's all I'm really hoping to get out of it. Um, I feel like I had one other, that was so good. What you just said, I had one other follow-up on that. I'm probably spacing and it'll come back to me. I mean, it speaks to the other like big piece of advice is have clear objectives if you are going to pay for PR because it can do a lot for you. It can support you on a tour. That's really important. You know, if you're a band, you're going to all these other markets. You are going to want the weeklies to write about you. Yeah. Then you're paying for something. You're paying to get people uh, to shows. I had one uh, publicist tell me uh, they were working with an artist who was very new, very talented, and had no money to record. Mm-hmm. And so what she was hoping to do is get these media placements so she could leverage them into label interest. Yeah, That could work. I mean, it's a long shot. It's definitely not guaranteed to work. But at least you're throwing your money behind, like, a tangible objective. But if it's just to get a blog post and stereo gum that isn't going to do anything anyway, you'll get it because you're paying a a publicity firm good money to get that. But then you'll get that post. Nobody will read it. Nobody will engage with it. And it's, like I said, it's just vanity. It doesn't do anything. That is classic FOMO in the industry. And I do that sometimes. I won't (laughs) share all my secrets that I've – well, I will. Um, like at I Voted Festival, we ran a big sweepstakes, giving away tickets to like 600 concerts during the early voting period. And I got um, ASM Global on first. They run the Pfizer Forum and a whole bunch of, of arenas nationwide. Actually, I got AEG on first, who's the second biggest concert promoter in America. And then I got ASM Global. So I was able to go to Live Nation and be like, oh, AEG and ASM Global. Oh, oh we want to be the biggest, you know, like, and I'm, we want to be first in the press. No problem. Absolutely. Um, but you hit on something before. I wasn't going to ask this question, but now I will. You, um, you know, you said an artist could hire a PR firm and that they're not ready for yet. So when is an artist ready? Yeah. So what a publicist would tell you, a reputable publicist, is when somebody else tells you you're ready. When, when there's some yeah. sign in your career that you're organically getting traction. So it could be local tastemakers writing about you. It could be... Um, you know, blog posts that you're getting that you weren't pitching yourself, magazine coverage that you weren't pitching yourself. Uh, maybe you're just doing bigger shows. That's yeah. exciting. But the world has to be giving you some sign that you're ready to take your career to the next step. If you're not getting that sign, if, if you're just telling yourself that, it's probably not enough. Just recording an album you're excited about probably isn't enough. You need to have something else to build on. Yeah, it's so true. And like I said, I'm so used, you know, used to hearing from new and independent artists. And that's why I was like, just be upfront about, you know, ex- expectations, you know, twofold. One, like, okay, I want to be in Pitchfork. Well, everybody wants to be in Pitchfork, right? And any good publicist is going to tell you, you're not going to be in Pitchfork, right? Like in, in the early days. Um, but you also need to be upfront about like, you know, who has written about you. So, you know, like I said, they have those tools um, to grow from there. So, 
Let's start at the beginning. Um, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from uh, Milwaukee. <laughs> like where in Milwaukee? Uh, I grew up on the east side, like the Atomic Records shows at the Globe East sort of thing. Uh, I was like a kid in the 90s where like Milwaukee's music scene was, it was awesome, but mm-hmm. it like, it, it just wasn't covered. There was just yeah. nothing going on in the city for so long. So there was that mentality that nothing ever could happen mm-hmm. for Milwaukee musicians. Um, so you were always cool because you were on the east side. I'm from uh, Waukesha County, which is not cool. Um, I do feel like, and uh, this is, a, I didn't mean to preview our next guest, but I do feel like the Paps Theater Group guys have kind of changed that. I feel like when I was growing yeah. up here in the 90s and I loved Britpop bands, they would always play Chicago and Minneapolis yeah. and skip Milwaukee. And now, like, we have an, um, I think we have an, um, we have amazing promoters here, which helps a lot. It was it was a lot of things. So I started at the, you know, I grew up reading the Shepherd Express. I started working there in 2006. And at the time, like interest in Milwaukee music was at like an all-time low. It was like, mm. it was like pathetic. Wow. Uh, it wasn't getting any media coverage. It just wasn't like any excitement about it. To be honest, like interest in the city as a whole was kind of like, it wasn't there. There wasn't this like swell of like local pride. Mm-hmm. And then in just a few short years, you had uh, the Paps Theater Group invest a ton into this idea that like uh, local music was like something worth celebrating, um, like a badge of honor for the city. You had a Ready Milwaukee startup start really platforming local music as like a selling point. And, you know, you just had like the Milwaukee home t-shirts everywhere all of a sudden. And this wasn't unique to Milwaukee. Like if you're if you're listening to this outside of Milwaukee, like this has happened in most local markets. Uh, a, a lot of that is like, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. Every city wants to market like a creative class. Yeah. So like the powers that be realize that like art is important. Like it's important to the economy of a city, but it's also important to like the image of mm-hmm. a city and the sense of self of a city. And music is a huge part of that. So that mindset, that shift in attitude created all these opportunities for musicians, like big time in Milwaukee. Like in Milwaukee, you could be putting out the best music uh, in 2004 and it just didn't matter. Nobody was going to get that CD. It just, it just didn't matter. There was no appetite for it. And now there's like, there's a big appetite. People are proud to listen to local music. It's not like a stigma being local anymore. And I think that was like one of the big shifts is like you would talk to artists back in the 2000s and it was always like, I don't want to be a Milwaukee artist. I don't want to be a Milwaukee artist. And it's like, now it's like, you should be a Milwaukee artist. That's that's what's unique about you, right? Like if you're from Nashville or Los Angeles or Atlanta, you're just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Milwaukee can be what's like different and unique about you. And if you embrace that individuality, like there's potential there. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. And it's so true. And to me, it also goes back to like, you can record and distribute from just about anywhere now. I'm going to keep talking about Justin Vernon. This guy has built an empire from northern freaking Wisconsin, you know, like that's up north to us. I'm sure I told this story on this podcast, but I was in uh, London maybe 10 years ago and I happened to be meeting with Justin's agent about another artist and I can't do an English accent. Uh, despite being a Britpop fan, but he was like, we're flying to Eau Claire. We're so excited. I'm like, wow, I've never heard that ever. So it's like, you guys already have an advantage, like, you know, being here or wherever folks are listening, right? Like Phoenix, Baltimore, Albuquerque. Like I just saw a tweet. um, I think it was from a, a pretty big music writer that was talking about how 
hip hop in New Orleans is just going off right mm-hmm. now. And of course that, you know, is a, a city with a, you know, storied music history, but it's also a city of under a million people, mm-hmm. right? And also keep in mind your cost of living here is a fraction of what it is um, in other places. So um, yeah, I do think this is such a, th- thank you for everything you just said. I, I love that. Um, what did you study in college? I was a psych major, but I did journalism. So that was kind of like how I ended up in music journalism. I wrote for the college paper, became an editor for for the college paper, got jobs editing weekly papers, that sort of thing. Very cool. Well, psychology is always good for the music industry, so we like that. Um, So when you were writing for UW's newspaper, did you start in music and culture? Yeah, I did. That's how I became like, I did journalism proper, and my my entry was I just did like a music column. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was valid. Like, just write. You just start by starting. That's what I always tell people. And, like, literally, did you just ask to do that? Was there an opening? Oh, it was like, so easy. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it was like, it was easy back then and it's even easier now. Like, yeah. getting published is just like write and then get published somewhere. It's not hard. Just There's reach not out. like a lot of barriers. Yeah. Just reach out and say, you just ask. Yeah. And, like, provide writing samples, I would assume. I well, don't think I, I don't even think I had a yeah, writing sample. For sure. But, but you can, like, this is what I always tell, like, writers. I know it's a different audience than musicians. But you can make your own samples. Like people yeah. would always come to me like, oh, how do I like start writing? And be like, just just write. Well, but I don't have I don't have a clip. I don't have a sample. And it's like, publish it anywhere online and it's a sample. Like it's so easy to make your own sample. Like the, the barriers, it's just not there. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, and then how did you make the leap to the Wisconsin State Journal from that? Because that's, you know, I mean. Yeah, that was my real journalism yeah, job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, back then, like, every every journalism job you applied for wanted to see, like, two years in a newsroom. Wow. So it was like a general assignment reporter. It was, it was terrible. It was not as fun as covering music. Like, but then how did you get it, though? Like, did that two years count from working at the college paper? I didn't even stay that long. No, okay. I just, <laughs> you can just You can just pivot. I got an opportunity to do some other stuff. Nice. And, you know. Clearly the goal was, I mean, was the goal always to cover culture, art? I mean, you grew up no, on the East No, I mean, I didn't think it was ever, like, possible to mm. do that. Like, um, when I started at The Shepherd in 2006, they didn't have, like, a full-time music reporter. They just had, like, a freelancer wow. doing, like, a very tiny column yeah. on uh, local music, and that was it. And so I just was, like, I saw the opportunity because I, like, grew up in the city. I knew the city had, like, a great music scene. Mm-hmm. I knew people were excited about it. I knew there was, like, some interest in it, even though it was a fraction of what it is now. And I just kind of built on that. Well, before you landed at Shepherd Express, how did you navigate the transition to Core Weekly? Uh, that's a weird story. That was, like, a, a, a like a corporate alt-weekly for kids. It's, it's a weird, like, publishing thing. It's probably too in the weeds to get into here. But, like, there was this idea in newspapers back then that... Uh, uh, as as everybody else was heading to digital, the daily papers wanted to put out these products that were like alt-weeklies, but like younger and hipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Milwaukee, we had one called MKE. Uh, a lot of cities like had them. They None of them lasted. They're not like very fondly remembered. Uh, but it, you know, it was fun writing for one. Little blip of journalism history that everybody's forgotten. Well, and I think all of this is important too, because it's like you worked your chops. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you learned how to, I assume, learned how to write, learned how to write on deadlines, you know, yeah. even if it wasn't necessarily like the hippest thing all the time. Nope. Yeah. Very cool. So you mentioned the Shepherd Express. How did that opportunity um, arise? I just made it arise. Like they yeah. weren't, they weren't hiring somebody to be uh, a music editor, uh, but I had some skills. Like I was, I was young back then. 
So I was like more versed in what was going on online, mm-hmm. and they didn't really have like very advanced web public, uh, a very advanced like web presence back then. So they needed two things, you know, they needed somebody to cover music, they needed somebody to help them like publish more online, and just like by just kind of being there. I mean, yeah. that was kind of just like it wasn't like I applied to a job opening. Yeah and competed with, like, 40 other people for the job. Sure. I was just the person there who offered to do it. But, like, what does that mean? Like, did you reach out? Were you doing some pieces for oh, them? Oh, yeah, I started like... freelancing, which okay, is, cool. as, as a writer, it's, like, always the place to start. Yeah. Like, it, my advice to, like, a writer, I don't know if there's any writers here, but, like, just start writing for anything and everybody, especially anything that pays. Uh, and eventually, one of those might lead to something. You just have to start. You just have to get your foot in the door. A hundred percent. So working in one place for 13 years is rare in the modern era, let alone in journalism, let alone between 2006 and 2019. So how did you see your own industry shift throughout that time? Because you were at Shepard Express yeah. for those. I mean, yeah. I mean, go I for mean, it. it. Yeah, it changed, it changed so much. Like, first of all, like, went from no audience for what I was writing, at least that I knew of, to, like, just a huge audience. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was awesome. I mean, this was, this was a time where, like, people were really seeking out Milwaukee music. Yeah. And you could really help an artist by covering it. I know I, like, undercut the mystique of what I do or did earlier when I said, like, the ROI on press mm-hmm. is, like, modest. But, you know, in the right situation, like, back then, putting, like, a local rapper on the cover of a weekly yeah. paper that was in every grocery store, that did something. Yeah. You know, if nothing else, it brought a few more people out to a show, yeah. right? Like, I'm not saying it like it, it didn't make superstars or anything, but like it made a real difference in some people's careers. Uh, and it was awesome to like be doing that. And so, yeah, so it, it's, you know, it changed. Like it, it went from like me searching artists on like MySpace. That was like mm-hmm. how I used to find artists to all the new platforms. It just, it just like changed. Like the biggest change for sure was I could find anybody's music at a certain point. Like when I started doing music criticism, somebody had to reach out to me like with their CD for me Mm -hmm. to know about it. Or I had to like go to a show and see them. I had to discover them. And that was like the biggest barrier, like getting from being a musician to getting your music in the hands of somebody who might care or might cover it or platform it. That used to be really, really, really hard. Just huge technical financial barriers. Now it's the easiest thing in the world. Now it's all there, like, on the app I have in my pocket. I can pull, I mean, I'm sure there's, like, artists in the crowd. I could pull up any of your music right now. So, like, now it's really easy. So it totally changed. It went from me, like, scrapping for music to cover. And and I'll be honest, like, some of the Milwaukee music I used to cover just wasn't great because I had to cover something every week. You know, it was just, like, it was just you cover what you know, you cover what's out there, to now just, like, having more than I could ever dream of covering. It's crazy. I love that. And, you know, you said that was such a special time um, here in Milwaukee to mm-hmm. be covering music. You're a part of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was, I mean, I did not take it for granted. Like, it was It was awesome. Like, you just, you start to feel like a caretaker of the scene, mm-hmm. you know? Now, I'm going to put a pin in that for a second because you are right about everything you are saying. Um, at the same time, there are genres, uh, and I'm generalizing because there are outlets that cover these things. Um, l- let me, let me, Put it like this. I have worked with artists like the Fiery Furnaces, who mm-hmm. you definitely know, um, that get, you know, the most press you can ever imagine in the history of the world. And I love that band very much, but 
they play like the Mercury Lounge in New York City, which is like 200 capacity. And that's like one of the, well, Chicago would probably be their best market because they're from there. But you got the idea. I've worked with jam bands and EDM artists that can sell out Madison Square Garden and Red Rocks that press hates. I'm using the word hate again. So on one hand, what you're saying is is true and so important, but it's also not the be all end all. Like it is about your music. It is about your scene. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Does that yeah, make sense? I mean, press is not a validation of your worth. Yeah. It is not. And if you spend too much time chasing it, you are you're missing the forest for the trees. I mean, the uh, I, I see this every time at like uh, year end lists. Like in December, yeah. publications share like year end lists, and then the artists who aren't on them, it's just natural. You feel like very hurt or rejected, but it's not an act of rejection. You just can't cover everything. It doesn't mean anything. It, yeah. it really means like so, so, so little. So yeah, don't, I mean, don't get too hung up on the press. You heard it from the horse's mouth. It means so little. I mean, I don't think that's, because like I said, which I didn't emphasize in kind of my opening lecture is to me, it's a tool. Yeah. You know? Um, And on one hand, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned an artist like hiring a publicist, like, oh, let's get some press hits so they can get signed or whatever. I would say as a manager, build, I mean, the music has to be great, build up your audience. So then I can, if you want to be on a label or any industry person, right? Like sync pitching, booking agent, whatever. although we're going to do a whole episode on how to, how to get a booking agent um, on Saturday. But anyway, um, build up your fans, your email list, your text message club, your stream, stuff like that, and take that data um, to the, the whatever folks you're trying to get in front of. And it's really interesting, like... Um, at I Voted Festival, we book the top trending artists in each state. Mm-hmm. And so I downloaded the top trending artists from uh, Wisconsin when I first started doing this. And there were plenty of artists um, on the list that I recognize. And I have to be totally frank, the artists that are often like, you know, the Milwaukee Journals, um, Journal Sentinels, uh, Milwaukee artists to watch at South by Southwest were way at the bottom of the data. Mm-hmm. And, di- and it's, ca- it's kind of what I just said on the national level. Um, and didn't really have a lot of fans. And then the last time I checked, the number one artist in Milwaukee that's crushing on Spotify is a Thai pop band I'd never heard of. So for me as a manager, um, if I'm managing the Thai pop band, I'm going to take those numbers to, you know, music publishers, booking agents, stuff like that. It's not about like, you know, do you have a creative press shot of like an instrument in the river, which... That's very cool. Those are very beautiful photos. But to me, it's not necessarily about, it's not even to me, it's not necessarily about an expensive photo shoot and publicists and press. It's like, do you have fans or not? So uh, Spotify runs this like Sounds of Milwaukee playlist. They do it for like each market. It's like, it's generated by algorithm, but it's like the songs that are most uniquely popular in each city, you know, in Mm -hmm. London, Chicago, or Milwaukee. And Milwaukee's is like a few songs you'd recognize, and then just a ton of Milwaukee rap and a ton of Detroit rap, but just tons of Milwaukee rap, which never gets local coverage. Wow. And, and a lot of it doesn't get national coverage. That's changing. Like, the Milwaukee rap scene is getting a ton of uh, press lately, um, and it's getting, like, a lot of excitement on TikTok. Like, people are catching up to Milwaukee rap, which is awesome, but you will find all these Milwaukee rappers with just absurd streams that you did not think was pos- possible for Milwaukee artists. And you will notice that a lot of these artists have no PR operations at all. And I know rap is a whole different world because of the way people consume it. There's just like a very, very actively engaged audience for it that is just on YouTube, on the streaming platforms, just Mm -hmm. 
devouring it and keeping up with like each new drop. So not like every genre is going to have that luxury, but if you take anything away from its success, it's that you can do everything wrong from a PR perspective. Yeah. You know, no, no publicist, no email contact. There's no way to get in touch with these guys uh, and still just absolutely crush it in the metrics that matter the most, which is, are people listening to your music? And you'll go on YouTube and you'll see that these rappers have some of the millions of streams mm-hmm. for a song. I mean, 10 years ago, the idea that like a Milwaukee track could do 3 million streams yeah. was like unthinkable. And now it's like, now that's the bar. I mean, like now it's like, I mean, it's, it's almost expected from some of these artists. And so that's a big, that's a big change. And again, press and PR, zero to do with that success. Like literally zero to do with it. Might have even hurt their success. Right. <laughs> you know, if they did it wrong and... You know, like if if um, I was saying earlier, like sound like where you're from. Mm-hmm. If these artists like were just straight chasing like industry sounds and yeah. industry trends and industry looks, well, suddenly you lose that thing that's like indelible, right. and nobody wants that. Like, there's we can get Atlanta music from Atlanta. Nobody wants a watered down version of that from Milwaukee. Yeah, and so yeah, like play up where you are, play up your strengths, play up your individuality. It's so true. And I say this not to deter you, but if I don't say it, then the industry won't change. There is a ton of racism and sexism in the music industry. And frankly, it's not something I even, I didn't realize how bad it was until there's um, a really great, basically music industry database called Roster. And they've done studies analyzing like the top 200 management Um, companies globally and what percentage of genres they have. Um, Am I good? Okay, it's all good. It's live, people, so thanks for rolling with us. Um, But I'm getting a little hungry and spacey, too. But I promise I will make sense with this point. Um, We're talking about... Oh, Racism and sexism in the music industry, very important. So Roster has analyzed the top 200 uh, management companies in the world, and they overwhelmingly manage cis white uh, male artists, right? Um, So that is so messed up because of what you're just saying. So like I downloaded the top trending artists in Pennsylvania at I Voted, and, uh, and let me just back this up real quick without digressing too much. If you remember right before the 2016 election, um, Hillary was out with uh, Bruce Springsteen, Beyonce, Jay-Z. I was really impressed. I was like, mm-hmm. this is amazing. And now that I've really downloaded this data, people are listening to Beyonce because she has a, a record out right now. Um, but no one was listening to those artists, let alone where it like counted. And so when I downloaded the top trending artists from Pennsylvania, the top artist, and this is exactly what you're saying, um, was named K Suave. K Suave has 5 million monthly Spotify listeners, a million Instagram followers, and zero traditionally traditional industry representation. Mm-hmm. So our industry needs to get its shit together and start paying attention to metrics and music and not just like what we what people are writing about or what we think Mm -hmm. um, people are listening to. Totally agree. So back to you. Uh, In 2019, you moved on to 88.9 Radio Milwaukee Mm -hmm. with the no small task of responsibly growing their online audience. Um, That's a lot of what we talked about today. So what are best practices in growing one's web presence? 
Yeah, for 88.9, it was awesome. I mean, you just, I mean, it was uh, a readership and a listenership that just loved Milwaukee music. So you just covered that and they were excited. And that's, you know, this is what I do in a lot of my jobs. I do content strategy. Mm-hmm. Just run with what works. Figure out what people respond to. See what they're clicking on the most. Give them more of that. Yeah. It's not It's not rocket science. <laughs> you know, if you do something and nobody streams it, nobody reads it, eh, maybe do less of that. If you do something mm-hmm. and it blows up, run with that. I mean, you, you need to find the balance between not dumbing down what you're doing just so you're doing the things that get, get clicks but the world will tell you organically what you're interested in or what they're interested in. Like I see so many um, artists do like a lot of music videos mm-hmm. and I can see the streams on those music videos and I go, why are you doing those music videos? <laughs> like I feel yeah. like if maybe the artist stepped back and they would see this isn't working. I'm, I'm dumping a lot of resources into something that isn't really working for me. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about music videos uh, later in this episode. So stay tuned for that. Um, and, you know, was working at Radio Milwaukee a natural transition with your years as a freelancer for corporate content campaigns? Because I can imagine, not to project, you might be working on kind of boring stuff and you have to make it pop. You have to get it out there. So did that help you in your role? It's, it's the same thing. Like yeah. marketing and music marketing and journalism, like the line between them is like gets blurrier. Uh, you just try to do whatever you're doing like with integrity, right? Yeah. You just try to like make good content. It doesn't matter whether you're doing it as a marketer or as a publicist where you're paid to do it mm-hmm. or whether you're doing it as a journalist where you can just like run with your heart and like just write whatever you want. The principles of like good content are the same. Like yeah. write something that's true, write something that's good to read, write something that's honest. Mm-hmm. 100%. I love all of that. So as I mentioned, you've written for Pitchfork, Paste, American Songwriter, NPR, and more. How did you build re- relationships with so many reputable national outlets? Um, unfortunately, like Twitter, like yeah. everything, every like national break I've had has come from Twitter. Like somebody's just like Twitter, if, if you're not on it, and I know it's like a weird time to be gassing Twitter because nobody wants to do it. But if you're in the media, it's so important because you just build these relationships. You just, the biggest writers, the biggest artists, the biggest publicists, the biggest everybody, we're all there in the same threads. And if you're not part of that world, it's yeah. so easy to just slide into that thread and be part of the conversation and just be top of mind just by like engaging with the people you want to follow. Uh, it's it's amazing because it like before there would have been no way that uh, some of these artists could interact with like the biggest writers mm-hmm. or the most prestigious label heads. Or, and now you now anybody can. You just take anybody. You just you go in there. Don't be too annoying. Act like a friend. You know, join the conversation. And eventually when the time comes where you want to ask something to these people, they'll think of you. Or in the case for me as a journalist, yeah. I didn't have to do anything. It was just editors saw what I was writing and said, hey, cool. want to write for us? And it was like, it was just so easy. It was like, I didn't have to like, you know, as a writer, every, every writer like dreamed of writing for Pitchfork. And it was like, oh, I'd love to do that one day. But I didn't like have a plan for how to make it happen. And I didn't want to like face the rejection Aww. of like, you know, like, hey, want me? And they'd be like, no. And be like, oh, okay, I understand. Uh, instead, I just, just on Twitter and the editor reaches out to me. And it's like, it's just that easy. Like opportunities avail themselves to you on Twitter if you use it well. But what wasn't easy is all the years of work you put in. Yeah, but I mean, you're doing those one way or the other. You know, it's, it's you get the reward in return if you're, if you're on Twitter and like your social media presence is right. For sure. And I don't, I'm going to botch my own story, but I remember 
when my friend Bill Wordy was the editor of Billboard, he was looking for a new assistant. And there's a young woman um, who shares my name, Emily White. I don't know if you remember, she was the NPR intern, yeah. if you remember that story going viral, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, and Bill was hiring an assistant. She was sitting in class her senior year at American University. And somehow I connected those two, and that's how she got her first job out of college. So um, I'm not really doing that story justice, but yeah, get in there. Like it's a river of information, you know, and, and um, like you said, just jump in on the conversations mm-hmm. for sure. So, you know, especially for something like Pitchfork, where I know you have a ton of experience and, and it's so in demand and it's such a big deal to get written about there. How did you decide what to write about? Well, at, at Pitchfork, it's really easy. I just mostly write whatever they ask me to write. So I'm not like, yeah. you know, there's two ways that a writer can work with a publication. They can pitch or they can be assigned. And it's mm-hmm. so much easier if you're just assigned. Um, but, I mean, you can also pitch like the, you know, if you can give them a list of like, hey, discovered this, this is great, want to write about it. And, you know, they might say yes, they might say no. Um, so, you know, for me, it's it's pretty great. Like, I just, I'm just like, kick the record, want to cover this. I say yes. And I do. I know that's like frustrating to a lot of like uh, artists in my market. Because I often get like local artists like, hey, can you get me in Pitchfork? And it's like, I, I just probably not. Right. <laughs> is, is like the, the answer. Like just because those like shortcuts don't exist. And, you know, I guess a related thought is we we're talking about like what are what is the value of a publicist? Because mm-hmm. we've sort of cut down PR quite a bit in this podcast. Fairly. I think it's important. But it does have some value. And, and yeah. one thing a publicist is really, really good for these days and, and why it's actually necessary once you reach a certain step, if you're not reaching, but once you've arrived, publicists are essentially gatekeepers now. If, if you're an author, you need a literary agent. Uh, why? Because uh, a book publisher isn't going to think of you without one, right? Like, they want to see a literary agent representing you because it's a sign that, okay, this person is legit, their pitch is legit, once it lands on my desk, I'll listen to it, I'll read it because it was vetted by an agent. Well, in music, uh, once you reach a certain level, the publicist is that agent, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're an independent artist, you, you really can't email the editor of Pitchfork and say, hey, totally. I know I don't have any streams, but it's really good. You just got to trust me. Because yeah. everybody is sending yeah. that pitch and everybody is getting ignored for that pitch. What that publicist name does is it's a vetted person. It's somebody in our inbox that we've seen a lot. Mm-hmm. Somebody that in some cases we have a relationship with. In some cases, a really good publicist actually gets to know your tastes as a writer or as an editor. So they're not just pitching you like any garbage. They're like, hey, I know you cover a lot of emo. I know you cover a lot of rap. You are going to love this. And then it's an actual recommendation from an actual human being. This is where, you know, for for all the the bad ROI on on publicists, this is why if you're popping, you eventually need one. So, I mean, it's, it's a good problem to have. Yes. And although I appreciate your analogy, and this is a separate podcast episode, <laughs> does a an author need um, a book publisher? And um, I've definitely gotten publishing deals without a lit agent. And I'm, I, you know, I work with lit agents. I don't have one representing me. Um, when I have questions, I've gone to them and I've even said, do you want to represent, you know, do you want to do it? And they're like, you totally know what you're doing. And if you need... You know, it just, it just depends on the route yeah. you want to go, yeah. right? Like 100%. you can go the independent route, you can go yeah. the more like establishment route. Like yeah. in many cases, the independent route is better. Yeah. And it's, you're exactly right. It's it's what's best and what's right for you, which, um, you know, I talked about in the last episode. Um, if you, 
you know, look, it's actually not up to you if you get signed or not, right? So that's why you have to do all this stuff. You have to create great art. You have to collect the data from your fans and you have to connect with them. If you want to get signed, you have to do all this stuff because you have to, generally, you have to build yourself up. And also that's going to put you in the best position leverage-wise and legally. And if you get signed, it is just as important to do all this stuff so you're running around and, um, you know, catching email addresses not only for your fans, um, but also for tastemakers and, and folks like that um, that are into you. Uh, so you talked about at Pitchfork, um, you mostly got assigned things. Were you mostly getting, I mean, I'm sure it was a mix, but, um, like features and articles or reviews as well? Cause I guess uh, my question it, is, yeah. well, answer the question first, please. Oh yeah. All of it. <laughs> all of it. So, well, and, and I'm sure your editor knew who is kind of more into what genres, but what if you get pitched a genre you know, for a review that you don't like or you don't know a ton about. Occasionally I decline them. Okay. Yeah, because I'll just be, or it's just an artist I just irrationally don't like. <laughs> you know, we want to be like fair to artists. Yes. We don't just want, you know. But uh, mostly like one of the fun things about being a critic is you just, you, yeah. you learn, you catch up, you're not familiar with this band, you listen to records, you read up, you form an opinion, you write something hopefully original. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, you can kind of cover almost anything, but you definitely got to know your limits too. Yeah. So true. hundred percent. Um, so this is kind of a random question. I know you've written many things. I mean, it's not a random question, but it's a random question for you. If you had to guess what percentage of your writing were stories pitched by publicists versus individual artists versus discovered on your own? So when I was a local journalist, it was like truly 50-50. Like when mm. I was doing like a coverage at the weekly of like the local music scene, it was like truly like 50%. Like I would see an artist or see them on a bunch of bills and go, okay, I should like look into this. What's this all about? A lot of it was shows. That's probably like the most important thing we haven't talked about in this podcast, but like shows are free PR. Like yeah. if you're looking for free PR, play a lot of shows because that's your name on a bill. Mm -hmm. That's your name in print in the weeklies and on websites and stuff. Like that's the best publicity you can do is just play a lot of shows. And that was often, especially, you know, in the like less developed days of the internet, like how I would discover artists. But then, you know, like I was working for a weekly paper. I had to cover something every week. So like when artists would email me, uh, I, I would check out everything. I mean, anything that I got emailed, I would listen to. Any CD I got sent in the mail back in the days when people, like, sent CDs in the mail, I would listen to. And so my advice to, like, local artists was always, like, shoot your shot, right? Like, you want some press. When is your best chance of getting press? It's probably for a new album or a big show or ideally, like, an album release show. Mm -hmm. Like, that, for, like, local press, that's, like, going to be, like, the biggest hook. Got a new album, got a new EP, and I'm playing a release show the media is powerless not to cover that, right? Like, that is something valuable to them. They want to be in the loop. That is your time to, like, put yourself out there to, like, I don't want to say be obnoxious, but, like, you know, to, like, pick, pick your time to, like, stand up and say, this is now. This is the time you should cover me. Well, you just said two different things. And, um, you know, Saturday is our sustain, you know, your live strategy and sustainable touring episode. But you said play a lot of shows, but then also like focus on a CD release. Yeah, because you can't if you're playing three shows a CD. month, you can't be hounding the radio stations right. and, and like every blog. I mean, it just gets old. You know, yeah. it's just like people will tune out eventually. Like if mm -hmm. you're in somebody's That's inbox right. too much. People, people aren't going to think anything of it. Like, some artists are so prolific. Yeah. You know, they've got a new video every week. 
that's a problem because you're not yeah. telling the press what to pay attention yes. to. Like, it's good from a content strategy. Like, I know in music marketing workshops, they'll tell you, like, lots of content. Got to put out right. lots of content. Got to put out lots of content. But you don't market it all equally. You need to tell people what to pay attention to. If you put out six mixtapes this year, what is the one? Yeah. What is the album? What is the one that defines you? Like, what mm-hmm. is the one people should pay attention to? And if you're not directing people to the best representation of yourself, you're doing your own Artemis service. Yeah. Disservice, and, and we're not saying don't put out a bunch of mixtapes, but it's like, what are you telling Evan? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you servicing to media? That makes total sense. So what is the best way for a musician to connect with a music writer? It's so easy. Just send them an email. Like that's, it's the easiest thing in the world. Find an email, send them an email. If you can't find an email, you can, you know, do the DMs, but like be respectful about yeah. it. Also understand they might not get read. Yeah. You know, like an email is probably going to get read. A DM, there's all the like other folders and that's where like I check it and it's just a bunch of like sad yeah. pitches I missed. I feel really bad about it, but it, I didn't see it, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not that hard. Be respectful. I mentioned Twitter earlier. Like, that is a way to forge, like, a real relationship with yeah. the people you think should be covering you. Like, if there's a writer on your beat, if you do EDM and there's an EDM writer yeah. in your market, follow them, like their tweets, mm-hmm. engage with them in conversation, and then you'll be top of mind, like, when they're looking to cover something. I would say too, like put yourself out there in the scene in person too, you know, like I went to um, college in Boston, which is bigger than Milwaukee, but isn't, you know, New York or LA or whatever. And it's like, I knew Tom Kilty at the Boston Mm -hmm. Globe because like I would see him at shows or whatever. I wouldn't, I knew the Boston Phoenix writer. So I think that it's also really important to cultivate community. It's it's such, especially in a market like Milwaukee, which is what, like 600,000 people Mm -hmm. in the city, maybe a little more. It's not big and it can feel like there's big barriers. Like I used to sit on these panels for um, the whammies, the Wisconsin mm-hmm. area music industry. And it was all these musicians and they were like so deflated. Like they just, they just felt like the world was ignoring them. And it's mm. like, have you put yourself out there at all? Yeah. Like, have you even really started? And when I would talk to them, the answer was like kind of no. It was yeah. like, people aren't coming to me. And it was like, well, you can like pretty quickly change that. You can go mm-hmm. to shows, meet other musicians, talk, email, like, it's, it's just, there's, like, formal barriers aren't there. Now, there's a lot of ceilings. You know, it's, it's obviously, it's hard, to, it's hard to make a career out of this. It just is. But, like, to get that, like, first step, those first steps are, like, kind of the easiest. Well, you say writing an email is easy. <laughs> um, I also have a book out called Interning 101, and I did not set out to be an author. People suck at writing emails. So um, what do you want to see? And do you want to see a really long email with a million fonts and tons of attachments? Yes, exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> no, just make your email like as short as possible. Like, yeah. Just, just to the point, say who you are, uh, what you are, why it's important the who, what, where got this album. It's great. It's about this mm-hmm. telling your story. That's probably the, the like, most important thing we got to hit on that we haven't hit on yet in this podcast is the importance of folding a narrative into your PR campaign. You mentioned, Justin Vernon quite a bit. There's there's a reason that album resonated with so many people mm-hmm. beyond just the music being beautiful. It's had this story with it, mm-hmm. this context that really resonated. Well, one of the jobs that like every musician has to do if they're marketing their own music is come up with that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a publicist will tell you you need three things, great music, uh, great content, and a great story. Like any any like PR pitches around that. So find what your what's your story? What's unique about you? Are you the only person in your neighborhood making this kind of music? Mm. Is your album about recovery? Is it about the male gaze? What what are you writing about or where do you come from? Like what's unique that might resonate with somebody? Because context 
It can sound cynical, like, oh, you've got to package your music up in a great story. Yeah, it's a little cynical, but actually context is what resonates us with us when we listen to music. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that, that extra textual uh, extra textual context that like makes us think a little bit more about the music we listen to. It makes it resonate. Like when we listen to a Taylor Swift song, we're not just listening to a beautifully crafted pop song. We're listening to a song that comes from a very pers- specific persona that we understand and that it adds like a little extra something. And so your job with these like PR campaigns is to come up with that context, to come up with that story. Hit at that very briefly in your pitch but mostly just send a link to the music so they can stream it. That's it. Like, it doesn't need to be too long. Too long, it won't get read. Yeah. It's just, it's, so just one paragraph, uh-huh. in and out. A hundred percent. And don't forget a subject line. And also, when do you want to, do you want to receive these emails on Christmas, in the middle yes, of the night? Yes, on Christmas and in the middle of the night. Uh, the best time to send an email is probably uh, Tuesday through Thursday during work hours. If you send it uh, over the weekend or on a Monday morning, it'll get lost in a whole, this is just general marketing mm-hmm. thing too. It's not specific to music. Uh, it'll get lost in that like flood of emails that people have. If you send it after hours, it'll probably get lost. But if you send it, you know, at, uh, you know, 11 a.m. when somebody's a little bit bored and they've already done their work for the morning and they get a fresh email in the inbox, they might engage with it. Or 3 p.m. when they're kind of killing time before they leave the office, they might be more likely to engage with it. That being said, it doesn't matter very much. It's not like, you know, I think you can get so caught up in these like little tricks and best practices Mm -hmm. as if they matter. It, It doesn't really matter. But the goal of your email is to get read. And I might be biased as an industry person. Like the only time the music industry takes off is between is between Christmas and New Year's. And that's when every college intern thinks it's a good time to apply. <laughs> um, so, and if you can't do... Um, you know, the times that Evan mentioned, which are times that I feel are really opportune, there there are free tools like Boomerang for Gmail where you can schedule um, your emails to hit on like a Tuesday late morning. So like if you, I mean, that's amazing if you're dedicating your Saturday nights to doing this. I get it. Like people work, we have lives, we have different schedules. Um, Again, I don't want it to get lost in the inbox. So try to, and also like people suck at productivity to be totally honest. So help, you know, help them help you. Um, you can schedule your emails with Boomerang for Gmail. And also with Boomerang, um, you can do email tracking. And it's going to light up if the email has gotten clicked on or read. Because if it hasn't, it may have gone into spam. Um, and then you don't want to be like, oh, why doesn't Evan ever write me back? It's like, well, never, you know, maybe maybe you never got it. So we kind of just talked about this. But what's a super annoying way for a musician or anyone to contact you? Um People go too far on social media. I get artists who want coverage and they'll go through like three years worth of photos and liking them all. It's just weird. Oh my God. Like, it's just very, very weird. Yeah. Uh, Musicians get weird. Don't be weird. It's, uh, if you think you're being weird, you probably are. Uh, There are some artists in this market who are just notoriously too much. Mm. Uh, Some in really kind of alarming ways and others in just kind of like an eye roll sort of way. Don't be too much. Yeah. Uh, don't cross that barrier. I know this is going to sound contradictory, but like I'm saying, like befriend people on Twitter because that's really helpful. Like making a human connection yeah. is helpful, but don't just cross that line and like all their Facebook pictures and follow yeah. them on every social platform. That's just first of all, it doesn't work, and yeah. then second of all, it's just it's just alarming. Yeah, yeah, a thousand percent. So. What advice do you have for those pursuing music, culture, and entertainment writing careers? It could be someone young, 
Um, you know, I just met a young journalist who interviewed me for I Voted, and she's like, where's the intersection of music and politics? But I told you um, I met someone my parents' age who has an yeah. amazing resume in, you know, writing for the journal and sports and Associated Press. He's like, how do I write about music? So where can these, how did these folks do it? Uh, you can DM me. <laughs> <laughs> Like, for real, if, like, anybody's yeah. watching, like, and they're like, hey, I so want to nice write. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of writers do that for yeah. each other. Like, it's it's, it's not rare at all. Yeah. Uh, there's, like, a really great support system for writers, probably better than for musicians. Mm-hmm. I think musicians are, like, a little more competitive with each other sometimes. Like, they can, obviously, they can pool resources sometimes. But, like, writers, we sort of understand how, like, deflating it can be. You're mm-hmm. always getting laid off. It's hard to get gigs. Yeah. You get gigs and they don't pay. So there's, like, a, a big network of, like, writers out there that like just, like, share information, share editor contacts, share pay rates for publications. It's, um, like, we're looking to help. Like, I see it all the time on Twitter. Somebody will be like, ooh, I'm meeting with this young journalist on uh, Friday. What advice do you have for her? And people just, like, flood those threads cool. with really good advice. So uh, don't assume nobody wants to help you. People actually really do. And maybe we can learn from that, musicians, you know? Like I said, it's like, let's all rise together. Let's support each other. We're, you know, we're, we're one music community and, and we're one ecosystem. So let's keep that in mind. Um, last question for me before I open it up to the audience. Do you think podcasting is a natural extension for opinion journalists? Uh, don't, don't hate me, but, well, opinion <laughs> journalists, yes. I know you sometimes advise that, like, musicians should consider podcasts. I would say... Hmm don't, <laughs> unless you really have something to say. I think yeah. it's, I just think it's too much. I, I I think there's so much content out there that people don't engage with. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the world needs a, a, a podcast that isn't recorded like up to the standards of sure. a professional podcast. So I, I, I know like I've seen some musicians like try to do it usually doesn't work although some would do it awesome yeah but that's because they have the inspiration yeah so if you have the inspiration sure but if you're doing it as like a quota thing like ooh, this oh, might yeah. this might help on this press campaign ooh, i don't know uh just focus on marketing the album not the podcast yeah. you know that's that's the thing is you're you're kind of like cannibalizing your own resources when you right. commit to these like high lift marketing endeavors i just don't i don't think most artists should do that for you know for a journalist sure yeah, yeah. It's, you know, we, we have thoughts and opinions and saying them in a microphone, that's not that much of a stretch. Yeah. Well, I think it's like anything for you guys, right? It's not the tool, it's how are you using the tool? Like, I know we're talking about Twitter a lot, but I remember when Twitter first came out and I was working with an artist whose name I would love to share with you, but I won't. And he was like, well, I tweeted. I'm not like, he is pretty big actually, but like, I'm not huge yet. You know, and it's like, well, look at how Amanda Palmer uses the platform or look at how Zoe Keating uses the platform. Right. Um, And same with like NFTs. I get asked about like I just got asked about that on a music business podcast. Like, okay, now, like, you know, NFTs like aren't cool or something in music. I'm like, there are tons of artists doing really creative things with with NFTs and there's others doing super lame things. So it's the same with podcasting. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if if that calls to you um, and I will speak on that later. So I'll, I'll save a am I speaking on that later? I'll just say it now then. Um, I was managing an artist uh, who felt that he wasn't able to connect with his fans as intimately on social media. And he's like, I want to start a podcast to share some stories. And I'm like, that's really smart. I wish I would have thought of that. So it's not that I'm saying like, go start a podcast. It's like when these tools, um, you know, speak to you, that that's when I would say do it. And these guys know how to record better than I do. So yeah, that is true. <laughs> Awesome. Well, do we have any questions um, from Evan, either online or in the audience? 
I know you guys want press, so yes, Niall. What's up with you, Evan? Good to see you. Yeah, man, likewise. Um, so in the past, I want to say like maybe uh, a couple years ago, I've sent an email to a publicist um, in the city, and I feel as if um, through our conversation, okay, so to be pretty much uh, direct, he told me that he seen and was aware of something that was going on with me. So basically like a release, or I think it was like a show at the time. Hmm. But um, I think after he like acknowledged the email I sent to him, I didn't get a response or a outcome after. So when ah. that happens, what, where do I go from there? It means nothing. It's, it is not personal. Like emails fall through the cracks all the time. It takes more than one email. Uh, they might have wanted to follow up and they didn't. They might not have liked the track. The editorial calendar just might not have synced up. Your video premiere date, your album release date might have just been like overshadowed by three other things they had to cover. Like there's a million reasons for that. And this is like what I mean by like, do not internalize rejection from the press because it's not rejection. It is like really, really not rejection. And the, uh, you know, the, the slate is clean every single time. Three months later, pitch again fresh. You know what I mean? Just, just like bounce back. Don't, don't let it get you down. I guarantee, I guarantee you it means nothing. I guarantee you. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a possibility somebody like listened to the track and was like, nope, not for me. That's the worst thing it could have been. Doesn't mean they won't like the next one. You know, so just like, just keep at it. So you, would it be okay if he would have followed up that like a week or two yeah, later? It, it, more artists probably should. Yeah. Uh, and this is like, this is what a publicist will do for you mm-hmm. that maybe you can't do for yourself is they'll be a little bit more shameless. And actually by a little bit, I think we both know a lot more shameless. <laughs> There's a, like a joke in like publicist circles like, oh, just circling back on, just circling back on. Just cir-. They will follow up with the same pitch so many times and it, it gets pretty annoying and it's, it would be hard for an artist to do that for themselves because it's hard to take that kind of rejection. If you'd sent that email out five times, it would be very hard not to take that personal when nobody responded. Yeah. Publicists can do it and they don't take it personal because like, you know, I, for a living, I professionally ignore publicists. It's like what I do. I just get so many emails, I just ignore them. But yeah, just, just try again. And, and following up, it was just something almost no artist does. Like, you ask, like, oh, would it have helped if you sent out that email? I'm struck by how so few artists do. Only only a tiny handful do. And the squeaky wheels, they do get the coverage. Like, it doesn't feel good being a squeaky wheel, but, like, it works. It works. I've seen, not to, like, speak ill of the market, but, like, especially at times where, like, the Milwaukee music scene was a little leaner than it is right now, where there was, like, less talent, less competition. I would see some just, like, blatantly mid artists get so much press mm. and it was it was in part because they were so shameless about it i'm not saying being shameless being shameless that won't feel yeah. good and again it doesn't do that much but like if you wanted to game the market for like maximum publicity pr press coverage sure you could do it it just takes like persistence there's some amazing things you said in there. I Would you say more it's being like the smooth wheel and not the squeaky wheel though? Like the squeaky wheel sounds annoying to me. The squeaky wheel's annoying, but it worked. I mean, okay. uh, don't be don't be squeaky, be smooth. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if you were to like get squeaky about it, you would see some returns on that obnoxiousness. Like it just, it is the way it works. It's, PR is an obnoxious medium. It, it, it rewards kind of the attention seekers. If you want to be an attention seeker, you can 
you can go that route, you know. And you're talking about from the artist because you also said in there, I ignore publicist emails. So there are artists saying yes to $5,000 a month bills for... For me to ignore them. Correct. And yeah, yeah, for sure. That's why this episode is called How to Market With or Without a Budget. I would say, um, and I'm biased as an industry person, but like, you know, I was a manager for a long time. So I'm trying to get people pay, to pay attention to you. Um, you know, I... I would follow up a week or two later and be like, hey, I just wanted to check in on this. You know, again, being mindful of day of the week. And then again, it's so nice to have email tracking and know um, if they got it or not. And also keep in mind, like, because I understand, you didn't say this and I don't mean to project this on you, but like, you know, it's natural to feel like insecure, right? Like, oh, they're not into this or, or whatever. And it's like, they're humans. They could be sick. There could be, God forbid, a death in the family. They, you have no idea what's going, they could be going through a breakup, whatever, um, so there's nothing wrong with checking in a few weeks later, or, I think. Or think of it like a drip campaign where in your follow-up, you offer a little something more. Like, oh, hey, you know, just following up on, yeah. I also just released this new video. You yeah. know, like followed up with like one new asset. Oh, I've got some more press photos if you need them. Then it doesn't seem like you're just following up on the same thing. It's like, in case you were covering me, but need a new press photo, here's a new press. Like something just to like add a little bit more value. And then, then again, you don't sound like, like a broken record. 100%. What else? What do you want to know from Evan? Yeah, Eli. Thanks, Evan. Uh, my name is Eli. I sing in a band called The Girl. Um, I guess when you were talking a little bit uh, just about how a, a lot of artists nowadays um, are kind of finding success um, in ways that like don't make sense, like um, <laughs> like like the metrics don't make sense, or like you know all these things that people are saying you have to do like they're not doing um and not that they like don't have like social media presences or or, or whatever because i'm sure they do but I, I like i'm a person who like i can't spend i can't even spend an hour a day on social media like it'll kill me <laughs> um and like there are artists out there who <laughs> like pretty much aren't on social media and then they'll post like once in eight months and everyone's like, Oh my God, there's a new album coming out. And then like that works for them. And so like, you know, not cause I want to be like enigmatic or mysterious. Everyone thinks I'm like so cool because yeah. I like, don't post on social media, but like, I don't know, like for me, it's like hard. It's hard to use some of these tools the right way. So like, what's the balance? Cause I feel like part of being sustainable is yeah. just being authentic. You so know? like a social media presence is good for like engaging fans. It's not really that much of a prerequisite for landing press. All you need to have out there is that pinned tweet that Emily mentioned that this is my contact information. This is where you can stream this. Uh, dates, if you've got dates, put your dates up there. Uh, if you're in a band, uh, self-identify on social media. Explain what genre you are. Have the names of the people in the band and what they play. So if the media is looking to cover you, it's there. Back in the MySpace days, everybody used to use like ironic tags on music, like melodramatic popular song. <laughs> well, that that's not really helpful for uh, a music journalist looking to cover some of these artists. Like if you're emo, just say it. Just suck it up and say you're emo. If you're alternative hip hop, just say it. Just, you need to self-identify and give people the resources if they want to cover you. Not being on social media, I don't think it's going to hold you back very much in terms of like the, the PR that you get. Playing a show is infinitely more uh, important because a show is newsworthy, right? If you're doing a residency every month 
at a cool venue, that's a thing happening in our city that somebody can cover. If you're tweeting, nobody wants to cover your tweets, right? Like we're, we're there for like the art and the culture and like that aspect. So I know it can like feel deflating, like you, you're at a disadvantage if you're not social media inclined. I don't think it matters. What do you think? Um, is there someone else in the girl that could help you? Because I just want to make sure some of the information is getting out. And for the people that post every eight months, are those only big artists? Okay, so the artist that I had in mind when I was like, one person who's marketing strategy, I don't know if it's a strategy or not, but, but is kind of enviable is Playboy Cardi. Yeah. His music gets leaked. I'm not sure if it's even actually leaked or what. He doesn't ever post anywhere. It's, yeah, nobody's accidentally leaking Some that. ambiguous photo, and then all the fans are like, crawling around on the ground, like looking for scraps, right? Like how you said. And uh, like, it seemed like that happened organically, or I don't know if he just has like a genius marketing team or what, but like, it seems all like underground and stuff. So anyway, that's what I was referring to. And then um, what was the other, what did you ask? Me? Oh yeah. I mean, they could, but like, uh, I'm about to say something very stupid. Um, they don't have the vision. So hmm. But also, you know, I can't be like, I'm the one with the vision and then say I'm also not the one who's going to be the one posting. Like, that doesn't make sense. So I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think, I mean, I can see how much you hate it, so don't do it. Right? Like, I mean, it's, it's almost common sense. Like, why are you making art? It's not, yeah. to, it's not to be on social media and do something you hate. Like, I, I know artists who, this is going to sound like backhanded and maybe it is, where they seem to enjoy the marketing more than the music themselves. Like they, for them, they just, they just love the like cover design, the music videos that maybe aren't even getting all that many views. They just, they like, they love it. Right. And that's actually a valid way to be a musician. Like if you enjoy that, like packaging of your art, like I, I understand that's like satisfying too. You do you, if you enjoy it, but if you just want to play music and record music, why commit yourself to doing something you hate, especially when it matters so little? I love that. I also hate to be this person. I just want to make sure there is like a pinned tweet or something like with your releases, with your email list, with your tour dates, and maybe you could assign that um, to one of your bandmates. Anyone, anyone else? For Evan, we've got it covered. We're good. Um, well, Evan, thank you so much yeah. for your time tonight. Thanks I learned a ton. Me. I really appreciate you being here. Let's give it up for Evan, everyone. Evan Retleski, which I'll say correctly this time. Very impressive. Um, cool. Well, I have a few more things for you guys, so we're going to let you go. Yeah. Um, all right. So I just want to talk about radio for a second. Um, here in the U.S., I mean, in any country, we have, you know, a variety of different formats, but we don't have, well, we have NPR, but we don't have like a BBC um, or something like that. If you want to get, generally speaking, if you want to get played on pop or country radio, you are going to have to be signed to a major label or have an equally major budget. Um, that's who really holds the keys to those relationships. Um, but especially in the pop space, if you want to be a pop star, that's usually um, the route you're going to go. Although Taylor Swift has taken... Her own route, that's for sure. Um, okay, but what is very accessible to you, there's a few different formats that are accessible. Um, the first I would say is college radio. Um, college radio campaigns can be done by companies like Planetary Group, 
um, powder finger promotions, the syndicate. And I love all those people. Um, but I very rarely see artists maximize their college radio campaigns. And, you know, when an artist does a college radio campaign, they can be anywhere from like maybe $500 for like, a a digital campaign for a single, probably up to more like $1,500, you know, to service a few tracks or a whole album. I'm very clear with artists that the, we keep talking about ROI. The return on investment is very indirect, but it doesn't mean it isn't there. Um, and again, there's, there's ways to take advantage of, um, of college radio campaigns. So first, the indirect return on investment for college radio um, is I've had artists, you know, on the college radio charts and they're kind of like, well, I'm not huge yet. Um, a lot of these college radio stations don't have a big listenership, um, even, even online. Although there are what's called core stations and that's going to be like KCRW in LA, XPN in Philadelphia. Um, but you really, it's, it's kind of what we were talking about with press. Um, when you're getting spins, I don't care if it's in like, the Upper Peninsula, like tiniest school station, whatever, post about that, tag the stations, tag the DJs, start sharing and building up some hype and FOMO for yourself. Um, the other indirect ROI on college radio, which is hard to measure, but also not, is these are the passionate students. These are the music fan students in their scenes and in their communities. So I have seen, um, you know, college radio DJs and music directors go on to become booking agents, to become music supervisors. I've seen a shorter, feels weird to say return on investment, but, um, you know, like through, actually this was through, I voted, <laughs> but like through a college radio campaign, then this kid also worked at Penn State's entertainment committee and offered an artist like a $2,000 webcast, you know? So it's getting in with those students. And like I said, like following them on social media or having your bandmate follow them on the band's account through social media, engaging with them, and then popping up when you are getting spins and thanking them. Most college radio promo companies are going to remind you of this, but they also, like they have been doing this for so many years, sometimes they forget. Make sure um, to let them know you're available for interviews. You have tickets to give away. Um, and then when you do interviews or in-studio performances, post about it, share about, you know, share it, uh, spread the word. And um, there was one other tastemaker-y thing I was going to say about those kids, but you get the idea. Like it's, it's not always direct, but that's, you know, how you get in with them. And like I said, you need to be posting about it. You need to be sharing about it also, or sharing it. Also, we're going to talk about, talk about this more in the live and touring episode on Saturday. Um, but if you're self booking a tour and I don't know why I keep picking, picking Cincinnati, but like you're going to Cincinnati, you're going to neighboring markets and you have spins in those markets, that's really, um, that's really attractive to the venues that you're pitching. Let them know like University of Cincinnati is playing me. I'm getting spins at, you know, at Ohio state, whatever. Um, that's, that's going to help your case when, when you're booking yourself. So, um, yeah. So post about this stuff, tag about this, tag the stuff. It's just like the press reports with publicists. If you are, just letting a college radio report sit in your inbox, it's not doing anything for you. Most of these companies also uh, will run specialty campaigns. That's going to be, um, I worked for a big alternative radio station when I was in college in Boston, and they had a Sunday night uh, specialty show. Sometimes it's local, sometimes it's national. 
Um, but again, I've had artists chart on those and be like, I'm not huge yet. It's really about like the posting, tagging, spreading the word, making yourself available for interviews, ticket give it, ticket giveaways, and building up um, those relationships for the long term. Oh, I know what I was going to say about the um, college uh, radio station kids. This one's definitely indirect, but they might be the kind of micro-influencer tastemaker with their friends and their scene. Like, many of you are this person, but, you know, we all, I used to, I feel like I used to be this person growing up. Many of us know um, the folks in, in their scene, like, who know about Niall, who know about Sheila's son, who know about the girl, who know about, like, what's going on music-wise. So it's good to get in with them, you know, and, and build those relationships. Um, the other format that's very accessible to you and also very um, powerful is AAA, um, which is adult, I might be messing up the acronym, the order of the words, but it's like adult um, album alternative. Um, And again, all of these can be handled by a a college radio promoter, the ones I mentioned, the syndicate, planetary group, um, Powderfinger. And like folks like Adam Lewis at the planetary group, I mean, he has been doing this as long as I've been in music, like if he doesn't feel like your music is, is going to get play at college radio, most things will get played at college radio. There's like EDM, there's hip hop, there's every genre you can imagine. That's something that's always been great about college radio. Um, but he's going to tell you, um, what is a fit and what isn't. So, which is really righteous of him and also why he's had such a long career. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, you could send your music to Adam at Planetary Group and he'd be like, oh yeah, let's do a college campaign. Let's do a specialty campaign and let's do a AAA campaign because each of those are going to cost money. But the reason he's good at his job is he'll say to me, oh, you know what? This is going to crush it at college, but it's way too weird for AAA, you know? Um, so rely on those radio promoters, um, you know, you it's going to get more expensive as you go. It's, it's not necessarily like too wild. I'm not saying this is nothing. Um, but you know, you can do specialty campaigns for 1500 a month. You can do AAA campaigns, um, for 3000 a month. I'm not allowed to share this person's name, which bugs me, but I have a friend that really, I don't have A&R ears like this, who knows what's going to be a hit or not. And maybe you have these people in your life. You know, this person does, Um, radio promo for uh, labels like Glassnote and Daniel Glass, who, you know, founded and runs Glassnote, will not make a decision on signing an artist until this guy signs off on it. So much so that um, this guy was in his office uh, and they were listening to the Lumineers before they were signed. And uh, this radio promoter was like, this is a hit, this is a hit, this is a hit. But, which he was right. Uh, But Daniel felt it, it was a little too similar to Mumford and Sons and he kind of already had something in, in that style. At the same time, many of you have already done this and are doing this, build up relationships with local DJs, local um, music directors, local program directors, go to different 88.9 shows, go to WNOV events, you know, like start to make connections with these folks because they're all music fans, you know, and again, like offer to put them on the guest list, send them mindful emails, short emails when you have things going on. Um, because they are music fans at the end of the day. And here's my podcasting note. Um, I already mentioned podcasting. If that's something 
um, you know, that, that speaks to you, absolutely do it. I loved that, like I said, an artist we worked with came to us and said, I just don't feel like I'm making a very intimate connection with my audience. I have more stories, you know, about the music that I want to share with them and, you know, what I'm go- what's going on with me, even like mental health wise and anxiety wise. And I thought that's so smart. That's such a beautiful way um, to connect with your audience. Um, before I move on, does anyone have questions on radio? I kind of went through that quickly. Okay, we're radio experts, love it. Um, Just a couple more things and then I will let you go. Music videos, okay. Um, I know we keep saying ROI, none of us got into music because of return return on investment, Um, but the ROI on music video, I'm dating myself with this, but like the ROI on music videos is certainly not what it was when I was growing up, right? Like if you had a video on MTV or VH1 in the 90s, it meant sales, it meant money, it meant success. Now, sure, you can go viral with a video, but you know, YouTube is actually the biggest streaming platform in the world, more than Spotify, right? Because there's just so much content on it at all times. It really crushes me and breaks my heart to say this because one of my best girlfriends is an amazing music video director, but I don't think you should be spending more than 500 or 1000 bucks on a video. Um, again, if you have some clear artistic vision and this is your baby and this is why you're doing art, please do that. I'm not going to stop you. But once again, we have incredible cameras on our phones. Um, I worked with an artist named Young Hines and this was like 10 years ago and he shot such a gorgeous video on his iPhone, you know, um, or connect with local film students. I mean, you're in a great, this is, you know, local, very local to this audience, but you're in a great space here at No Studios. I was just talking to Finn who works the door sometimes. He's an up and coming filmmaker, right? Like we've got Milwaukee Film in the building. Connect with other filmmakers um, and see if if you can grow together. Um, But I do think you should be mindful about those budgets because, you know, I remember I was working with an artist. She was on a super hip indie label. And, you know, she spent, she had them spend $20,000, $25,000, which is nothing compared to back in the day. That was like millions of dollars, but spent, you know, five figure, 20, 25 grand on music videos. And she's like, you know, she lived in New York city, lives in New York city. I went, I went to this dinner party and I showed them, you know, my music video. And they're like, this is so cool. You know, why haven't I seen this? And I said, I'm dating myself with this reference, but I was like, well, ask them what the last music video they saw was, and the answer would be Childish Gambino, and that's all they can name, you know? So, like, just think about the medium, thinking about, think about why you're doing this. I don't want to stop you from creating your art, but I do want you to think about why am I spending $30,000 on a... I'm not that we necessarily have that, but even when you're working with a label, I think you should be smart and efficient, and most of you probably know this, but try to shoot more than one video at once, right? And again, don't forget you have um, very, very nice cameras on your smartphones. Okay. Um, just, I want to touch on uh, brand, brand sponsorships and endorsement partnerships briefly. Um, I, I really bury this in the marketing chapter and I get pitched by music branding folks all the time to be on this podcast. And the reason I haven't had one on, although we might do a special sponsorship episode um, with my favorite sponsorship person, uh, Mike Zimmerlich. Um, but the, the reason it would be special is everything I'm trying to present to you is available to you. And I remember, um, you know, uh, a new artist, uh, putting together a pitch deck and pitching all these brands. I think even going after like Apple, like Apple doesn't give free things to anybody, but that's obviously like very, very extreme. But 
the artist didn't have a following and you need to think about partnerships truly as partnerships. Like I work with athletes, um, in the Olympic space and, you know, so I've, I've done quite a bit of branding work in that space. And I, that's how I view it. I'm not just trying to like get the most money possible. It's like how I always ask, what are your goals and initiatives? And then I can get creative around that. But first, like I said, you need to have a following. That's what I mean by partnership. Like, um, what are they getting out of it? And it's not just numbers. Um, my company manages an artist named Julia Nunes who has extremely strong engagement numbers um, because she's very authentic and genuine on social media and her fans totally love this. So we get hit up by brands all the time who, you know, she, I mean, she has a large following too, but um, they aren't as interested. Well, the, I hope this isn't confusing. They are interested in the following, but they are more interested in the engagement numbers. So are you, are you doing it right? So when you're a new artist and you're thinking about brand partnerships, on one hand, I think it's, it's too early. On the other I think it's really cool to work, maybe I'm biased as a nonprofit founder, but um, to work with nonprofits and, and causes that you're passionate about. Maybe it's more of a promo trade. Uh, maybe it's a product trade. Maybe you're working with local brands and partners that you're into. Um, I guest lecture at Appalachian State University in their management class. And I remember one group presented, one student group presented like, yeah, like um, we're doing a partnership with this local bar that everyone on campus likes to hang out at. We have a drink named after the band, like they're doing a show there. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's really cool, you know? Um, so think about local brands and partnerships you can keep in mind. And, you know, maybe this seems obvious, but like this stuff has to be authentic. Hopefully you're seeing that with, um, you know, the, the brands that I've chosen to share with you on this podcast. But again, back to Julia Nunes for a second. Um, we did a branding deal for her with a huge guitar company. It was for a ukulele, but a guitar company everyone's heard of. Guitar company I've worked with many times, but this was through an ad agency. And let me pause for a second. Very often when I'm working with brands, this is a little more in the Olympic space, but this is totally the case for you all as well. Um, you know, I remember before the Olympics, uh, I worked with this really cool athlete named Anthony Irvin and this headphones company wanted, wanted to work with him. And they're like, and we want him to post. Maybe it wasn't this, this bad, but like three times a day on all of his platforms, like for the next few months, I'm like, that's spam. That's going to turn them off. I mean, we all know this. Like, think about, you know, how, how you feel as fans. So more often than not, I am educating brands on what is actually going to work for the audience. Um, but back to Julia for a second. So she was promoting this famous ukulele brand. And um, again, I've worked with this brand directly. It's not usually this bad. But this one was through an ad agency. And Julia came up with like all these super creative posts. Like Julia's the type of person, I'm jumping around a little bit. We'll talk about her more in the merch episode, I'm sure. <laughs> but the merch company came to her once and was like, we have, we have like a million, um, I'm jumping around so much in my head right now, but like a million shirts and we need to move some of, like of this one kind of shirt. And she's like, send it to me. She cut it all up. She got super creative. Anyway, my point is she knows how to engage with her audience. That's why she's a six-figure Kickstarter artist. So she's, she's putting together posts for these ukuleles, and the ad agency is tweaking every single thing, and it's, like, feeling gross to me. It's feeling gross to her. I was respectful about it and said, um, well, this is what I'm saying to you all. You know, like, this is why she has this large following and strong engagement numbers because she knows how to communicate to her audience, and they weren't getting it. 
And I finally kind of had to flip out and be like, have you ever worked with artists before, you know? And then finally, someone from the branding agency was like, I used to work at Vector, which is a big artist management company. I totally understand what you're saying. Um, I'm sure we got on the phone to talk about it too. But um, yeah, it's like, you want to be yourself. Don't be afraid to explain what is yourself. And like I said, it has to be the right fit. There's plenty of artists that do big branding deals for a lot of money. Um, but you know, that's going to be the trade-off, right? Like, um, I've really enjoyed, you know, sharing companies like Banzoogle and Beatbread and Downtown and Song Trust, because like I said, like if Song Trust doesn't, ex- or sorry, if Song Trust stops getting involved with this podcast tomorrow, I'm still going to tell you to sign up for Song Trust. So you need to think about that, you know, with what you're wearing, what you're using, but know that ultimately it's about your following, but be open to, uh, local things as well. So any questions on that? Otherwise, I can just give a quick preview of next week's episode and we'll let you go. Anything on branding? We're good? Okay, cool. So I am super excited about Saturday's episode, Your Live Strategy and Efficient Touring. I used to be a tour manager, um, so this is something that's really um, close to my heart. Um, we're going to have Matt Berenger of the Paps Theater Group, and I really want to dig in with Matt Um, you know, because Evan was talking about what a great local music scene we see here. Like, how how can you build yourself up locally? How can you open for, you know, artists at bigger venues that are coming through nationally? Um, And then breaking news, we're going to have a second guest um, on that episode as well um, to talk about how to get on festivals. So we're going to have Scott Zeal, who's the vice president of entertainment from Milwaukee World Festival. Um, which is obviously Summerfest. So um, like I said, we're going to dig in on live touring for local, national, and international best practices. Thank you guys so much. It's freezing in Milwaukee, so I really appreciate you coming out. And we'll we'll be back on Saturday at 12.30 p.m. Central. We'll catch you then. Thanks.